This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another World of UX podcast. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thanks for joining me on today, and welcome to all of you that are listening to the podcast for the very first time. We are currently covering the topic, so you want to be a UXer, where we are attempting to provide various types of insights that will help people in the decision-making process. As we've, we've said this several times, and we're going to say it again today, it's one thing to think that you want to do something, it's another thing to qualify yourself to be that which you're seeking to be from a career standpoint. On one hand, you can do anything you put your mind to. We've heard that everywhere from Disney movies to, to grandmama. But we want to be realistic. We want to make sure that we're looking at things from a sober perspective we want to make sure we're being fair to ourselves. We want to make sure that we are putting ourselves in a position to count the cost in a way that will be productive, in a way that will be beneficial for everybody involved, and so that we have a goal that we set that we can truly attain. We want an attainable Goal And so in order to do that, there are a lot of things we need to look at. And this has been a really extended series. We're going to start trying to wind it up uh, here within the next couple of weeks, including tonight. So first things first, let's dive right in. We've been covering for the past few weeks, with the exception of that little interlude last week, uh, we have been talking about the types of work that user experience professionals engage in. And I've got to have this one little uh, digression here is that a lot of people out there are talking about UX, but what a lot of people present as UX is not UX. So when you think that you want to be a UXer and you look at what somebody presents, if the presentation that they give you is not authentic, and then you qualify yourself based on that misinformation, you're gonna have a rude awakening. We don't want you to be in that position. There are people out there claiming that, well, you know, come to me, you can master UI and UX. Come and learn from me. The mere fact that they said UI, UX, and they can outgrow this too, that's true, but the mere fact that they're presenting themselves as being someone that can help you to master a discipline that they obviously do not understand because they are presenting UI UX when there is no such thing as UI UX. How much mastery do you really think you're going to, to attain? Are you going to learn stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to learn something, but folks, there is no such thing as UI UX. UI is a subset of UX, has to do with interface design. It usually refers to the visual design component, as you have likely heard me say many, many times. But the other issue is when somebody presents UI and stresses too much, uh, or I should say they, they, they stress UI too much, 
there's going to be an issue there. There's going to be something that is left out. And that's part of what I'm trying to do right now and bringing up a lot of, of issues, a lot of, of things that we engage in. And I'm a person that I've talked about the four pillars. You've heard me talk about that before. And so I have experience across all four of those pillars. You might not engage to the point where you're, you're working with all four pillars in your initial job, say if you're just getting started out. But over the course of time, you do start to get more and more involved. And, and, and again, what you do is the, the, the type of UX work that you engage in is going to be based on the opportunities afforded to you by the place where you work and what the needs are. So let's keep that in mind. You're not going to have a certain type of UX work that you want to do go to a company and then that's a guarantee that you're going to do that kind of UX work. That may not happen. So you want to make sure you understand that as well. It is critical that expectations be realistic, that they be as accurate as possible. I have worked places and I've been, I've been doing UX for years and I've worked at places where I go and you, you think you're in this fantastic opportunity and maybe it is an opportunity but some opportunities come with caveats and in particular if the company you go to does not have a really strong ux maturity level you're going into a a a whirlpool if not a cesspool and so when you try to do you have an understanding of ux and you try to do ux as you know it but nobody else knows it but you you can about gather what's going to happen when you go in there and it becomes a very volatile environment, it becomes a, uh, you end up spending a lot of time trying to convince people about what you're doing instead of actually doing the work. So just another reality check, if you will. Let's make sure that that we don't see every UX role that a person goes into as this pie in the sky, kind of fantastic, wonderful-icious, don't make that up, that'll be a word for today. We'll get a permit for that. We'll use that for word, or word for today. Uh, everything's not great, folks. I'm not trying to scare you. I just want you to be realistic. I don't want anybody to engage and then you find out it's not what you thought that it was. So, so let's dive in. I've got seven types of work that I want to present today and then we're going to end this part of the segment and then moving on next week to talk about career transitioning, things of that nature, and we're gonna bring this topic to a close. Okay, here we go. Seven additional types of work that UX professionals do. We're gonna, I want you to uh, take a, a, a look at these, take them into consideration, and ask yourself, is this something I think I would enjoy doing? Is this something I can see myself doing? Is this something that I think aligns with what I have a passion for. These are the types of things, whether it's UX or anything else, this is what we're supposed to do when we're taking a certain type of work into consideration. You don't wanna, and we always, again, I'll bring up this example again. If you say you wanna be a doctor and then the first time you see blood, you're on the floor, um, you might have to choose something a little a little different because that's one of the quote unquote hazards of the trade. You're going to see blood if you're a doctor. So so we want you to see quote unquote 
the blood of UX, if you will. Uh, we've talked to you about some of the, the hard spots. We've talked to you about the work. We're going to wrap up again with these seven. Here we go. Number one for tonight, data analysis and synthesis. We've been talking about research a, a, a bit lately, and part of the, the, the product of research is data. And when that data comes in, you've conducted your research, you've, you've done some ethnographic work, you've conducted some remote usability testing, you've done some card sorting, you've done some tree testing. I know I didn't talk about tree testing, but look it up, you'll get some information on it. I don't wanna digress too much. And after that's done, you don't drop the microphone, so to speak. You're not, you just began. You now have the data because you conducted the research and we didn't even talk about designing research. That's another part of it that maybe we'll cover when we, we're gonna spend some weeks just focusing on research. We'll deep dive that type of thing at the time. You get the data, you analyze that data. What does the data say? What is the data opening up your understanding to? Did you find out what the pain points were? Did you find out if the design was working well? Did you find out something about your target audience? Did you identify some, some additional target audiences? What did your data uncover? What types of things did your data provide you with more understanding about? Did it fill you in, or it could, depending upon what you did, did it fill you in about where you stand in the competitive landscape? Did it identify opportunities that you could take? All these are the things that come out of research, but that's the analysis, just, just interpreting what's hidden, the, the meanings and the messages in the data. That's what data analysis is about. After you found out what the data is saying, now it's time to synthesize that data. Now it's time, now that you know what the data is saying, now you need to generate recommendations. You need to, to uncover, we understand that the data is saying X, and that means that we need to take the following two, three, four, or five actions. So it's one thing to design and conduct the research. It's another thing to analyze the data. And then it's yet another thing to synthesize the data. Find out what should we do because of what the data is saying. All of these skills come into play. So when a lot of people say that they wanna be a researcher, they may or may not understand that data analysis and synthesis, and yes, analysis and synthesis comes into play no matter what type of research you're doing. So it's not like you're going to conduct research and then run off and conduct more research. It is the responsibility of the researcher to engage in analyzing and synthesizing the data. So check yourself and see if these are uh, the types of work you like to be involved in and make a decision accordingly. You have error mitigation, and, and I'm gonna cover two types. I'm gonna cover error mitigation and risk mitigation. These are two things that UX professionals need to be adept in. 
It's not something maybe that you're going to be able to do up front, but you need to have it on your radar. So we need to be able to, by, by, by mitigation, we're talking about eliminating the possibility of a thing happening, which means that we have to be in the business of identifying where errors may occur. When we identify where errors may occur, and I might as well throw risk mitigation in here too, because risk mitigation is identifying where our risks are. It's not a bad thing. It's funny, when you talk about things that could happen that are not good, I mean, we're talking about almost in a sense, putting on a cynical hat, become a major cynic. This could go wrong. When a person uh, uh, works on this particular part of the experience, they are going to encounter errors A, B, C, D, and E. We know that these errors can indeed occur. So from an error mitigation perspective, what can we do? How can we execute this part of the design so that these errors do not occur? And I'll throw in ever error recovery, uh, which is a part, part of the heuristic factor because when errors do occur we need to let people know that the error has occurred and we need to let people know how to recover from that error so you have error mitigation because some errors you simply can't eliminate so if the errors do happen and sometimes they just happen because of user error really if a user presses the wrong button it should generate an error to let them know that they've done something that the system will not accept. So you simply have to program in a way, design in a way that someone will know that they've made an error and it's not the end of the world. Okay, there's an error. Now we wanna make sure that we are have designed a way for people to recognize the error, understand what happened, don't blame them, don't do anything to make them feel stupid. Just let them know an error occurred and this is what you can do to recover from that error. With regard to risk mitigation, we understand where there are risks within an experience. We need to identify those risks and this is where we have to design, hey, we need to do what we can to stop this thing from happening over here. So some people see things like that and they consider it being a Debbie Downer moment. They consider it being negative. And the fact of the matter is, these are things that can occur and we have to face it, we have to embrace it, and we have to design to make these parts of the experience uh, delightful. We have to uh, mitigate the error, keep the person from making the error, or if if it's an error that's going to happen because of a user error, again, the maybe an, an errant click or something of that sort, just provide the messaging, be courteous, provide the messaging and give the person a way to get out. Again, from risk mitigation, you wanna identify the risks and you want to eliminate them. You can't eliminate all errors, but you can pretty much eliminate all risk, if not all, the vast majority of them and just eliminate that that part of the experience from happening altogether. So, does that sound like something you like to do on a regular basis? Well, because that's what we do in the world of UX. Next, you want to get a knowledge of color psychology. And we can't spend a lot of time on this one today, but I do want to encourage you, make sure, and there's a lot of resources out there, certain colors mean certain things. You you simply cannot engage in the use of a color just because you have an affinity for the color. And, and maybe you're a hippo, 
does, the highest paid persons, and they get the highest paid person's opinion going. I like orange. I like blue. This thing has got to have red. And there are some times you just simply can't get around that. But it's something that we need to take into consideration with regard to color uh, psychology because different colors do generate certain emotional responses and so we want to be aware of those things the the most fun example i can give you is that it's interesting and think about it a lot of restaurants have red in their logo and it has been found that red is a great color (laughs) that's involved when it's uh when you're trying to get someone to eat uh so think about it think about all the red logos that are out there on restaurants uh, and <laughs> whether it's a small restaurant or a big restaurant, you will see red a lot of times because somebody knew that red makes people want to chow down. So um, be aware of color psychology, be in a position, educate yourself to be in the position to provide input that will help with your design efforts uh, to support what's going on because there is an emotional component We do design for emotional design impact as UX professionals. So be aware if you use this color, uh, this color means X. If you use this color over here, that means Y. If you use another color, that generates boldness and confidence. That's black is a color that 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 is uh, it's something that certain brands use. A lot of brands stay away from. Uh, but black is a color that actually is supposed to be very strong and bold and courageous and things of that nature. But it also can be, depending upon what you're doing, it could actually be very bland and, and very basic and, and 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 be very flat in some cases from an emotional design standpoint. So you want to be aware of what's going on with color just so you can inform everybody accordingly. Accessibility. This is a huge one, and I, I it, it's almost uh, difficult to address, but everybody is actually um, challenged at some point in time, whether they have a special need, whether they're blind, whether they're deaf, uh, whether they may have a prosthetic arm, whether they might be an older, uh, an older adult, or maybe somebody has tremors, and there's a lot of different things that come into play. Accessibility deserves its own time, which is why I'm not going to speak to it a lot today either. Um, But it is very important, especially as we continue to mature in the digital world and not even just digital things, but any product, it's important to understand factors associated with accessibility become learned in it and then design from a standpoint where you're being empathetic regarding all of the components associated with accessibility. So whether it's contrast, whether it is being able to include all the alt text, accounting for including all the alt text with any images in your design so that people can use a screen reader and can get around, or maybe you just need to be sensitive and include closed captioning with your video presentations so that people who can't hear will still understand the dialogue that's taking place in a video. These are just three examples of things associated with accessibility, so a lot to consider. With this factor, again, is this something that you would be interested in, something you could see yourself working 
with and and addressing this topic and all of the the various details and and the granular elements associated with the accessibility principles it's it's a, a, a simply a fascinating arena to operate in but it's not for everybody so just something to keep in mind and all you have to do is work at a company where accessibility comes to the forefront and you will have to learn about it so just keep that in the back of your mind and take it into consideration number six iconography practically everybody gets involved with regard to iconography in their workplace as a UX professional, but everybody doesn't have the knowledge about iconography. And then when an icon needs needs to be inserted into a design, when the lack of knowledge is there, now the user experience is going to suffer. Basically, we know what icons are. So iconography is basically the science behind the best practices on how to, to put together icons and how to use them so you don't have to be an iconographer per se, but if you're working on an interface, you could be working on a smart refrigerator, you could be working on an autonomous vehicle, you could be working on the uh, the the and, and working for an elevator company, and, and all of these things. Three examples I just mentioned all have icons on them. Do people understand them? Are people going to know how to engage? Uh, research is going to come into play because practically every time there are icons involved, you need to conduct some research to confirm whether or not the icons you're using are understood, if people are able to complete their tasks without any problems. So iconography is really huge. And for the record, best practices on iconography call for text with the image. However, you don't always have room for the text. And if you're working on a product or service that has to involve multiple languages, now the text component becomes even more challenging because what might be five letters with an English word might be 12 letters in German, or maybe it's eight letters in, fr in, in French, or maybe it's 15 letters in another language. So, so you can't always count on being able to include text with your icons. So what are you gonna do? in such cases. So these are some of the challenges that we have to face when we're working with icons. So again, something else to consider. Our last one for today as we wrap up this part of the work, and I'm glad that we saved this one for last, bias management. This is something that revolves around soft skills, but it is a critical component that the vast, vast majority of UX professionals it's something a lot of people are learning. It's something that most people have no idea about. Are you ready to manage your own biases? Manage the biases of stakeholders and clients? Manage the, bi the biases of your team members, people you're collaborating with on designs? Because bias will kill design efforts. It will destroy everything that you're doing as soon as somebody inserts something in a design because they just have an affinity for it because they have a, a just a, they just gravitate toward a particular thing but it doesn't really meet the user's needs is not meeting the business needs is not hitting that sweet spot between business needs user needs and constraints and they find its way into the design because people aren't paying attention to it or because they're afraid to push back they're afraid to say no 
bias management is a big part of UX that a lot of people don't even understand that it's a part of what we do. Folks, you have to learn to be good at bias management. We'll talk about that during another episode sometime later. But that's all that we have for today. Those are the big seven I was trying to cover. Folks, are you sure you want to be a UXer today? Please take these things into consideration and proceed accordingly. All right, that's all the time we have for today, folks. So this is Darren Hood, the host of The World of UX. Thanks again for joining me, everybody. Happy UXing. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.